The scripture for today is Mark 1st, chapter 1, verse 29 through 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him to all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. He cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. Thank you, Addie, and thank you to our trio, to Rachel, Emily, and Bonnie, and David, of course. And uh, thank you, Tyson, for the beautiful offertory on the organ. That looks like such a complicated instrument to me. So thank you for your dedication to learning how to, how to play And thank you all for being here. It's just uh, always good to see you and welcome you to this place. A preacher was being kind. He said, George, my friend, you aren't looking well today. Is something troubling your soul? He said, I got troubles in my family life, Reverend. He said, oh dear, but you've always told people that your wife is a pearl. He said, yes, she is. It's the mother of pearl who's making all the trouble. (laughs) Mother-in-law stories. We could fill a book with them, couldn't we? Trouble is, most mother-in-law stories are not very flattering toward those who happen to be mother-in-laws, and not just stories, but songs as well. There's a song from 1961. I had to look up the exact year. It's called the Mother-in-Law Song. As far as I know, that's the title. A guy named Ernie K. Doe recorded that song. And it may have been one-hit wonder. I'm not sure. But you might remember the song. Her presence here is such an intrusion. If she would just leave, that would be the solution. Mother-in-law. I bring home all my pay. She asked me what I made. (laughs) Mother-in-law. In one stanza of the song, the singer refers to Satan and his mother-in-law as the same. They're just the same, mother-in-law. It's not a very flattering song. It's not a very, uh, it did well on the popularity chart for a while, but uh, I'm glad it's kind of faded away. So why is it in story and in song, mother-in-laws are often referred to as being trouble, being, being difficult. It seems to me that mother-in-laws need to be considered just like any other group of persons as individuals. 
and not to judge them, not to stereotypically portray all mother-in-laws in a manner that is unfair and unflattering and difficult and never helpful. Truth is, we all know some positive mother-in-law stories, don't we? And if you don't know any, let me refer you back to the Old Testament. There's a great story there in the book of Ruth. Read it slowly, read it carefully, read it prayerfully, and you'll see what an amazing mother-in-law story this is, Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth. Meditate for a few moments on these words of Ruth, and you've heard them before. Chapter 1, verse 16. Do not press me to leave you or to cease from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, if even death parts me from you. It's a great story. I hope you'll, you'll take time to read that. And our gospel lesson for today, the one that, that Addie read so well just a moment ago, contains another mother-in-law story. I'm sure you picked that up as we read through that together. This one casting Simon Peter's mother-in-law in a most favorable light. But... There are a lot of fill-in-the-blanks to this story, fill-in-the-blanks that can only be filled in as we use our imaginations. And some folks say, whoa, you mean we can approach Scripture with imagination? You sure that's okay? And my response to that is, I believe that's the only way for us to approach Scripture and to fully appreciate it and to comprehend it with our imagination. That's the way it speaks to us often. Try to imagine, if you can for a moment, how Simon Peter's mother-in-law might have felt about Peter. Think about that. Maybe she said to her daughter, I don't know. I just don't know how you put up with that stinking foul-mouthed fisherman fool that you married. If women had any rights at all, you'd be a fool not to leave him. Or maybe she said to her daughter, you are one fortunate young woman to be married to such a rugged, hardworking, independent businessman and a good-looking guy as well. Pray that Peter never leaves you. I try to imagine how Simon Peter felt about having his mother-in-law in his house. No retirement homes back then. No personal care units, no nursing homes, no assisted living places, nothing as wonderful as our Wesley Woods and this community. But how did Simon Peter feel about her being there? Maybe he often said to himself, my wife has more siblings than I can count. Why doesn't she spend some of her time imposing on them instead of staying here all the time? Or he might have said, I hope my brother-in-laws and sister-in-laws don't come for her anytime soon. She is a wonder and a delight to have in our house. What a blessing. Try to imagine the difference Jesus made in the relationship between Simon Peter and his mother-in-law. Perhaps she told her daughter, that man you call your husband... I've always wondered about his instability. And now that he's gotten himself all mixed up with that wandering preacher from Nazareth and whatever kind of cult he's putting together, I I don't know what to think. Or perhaps she told her daughter, your husband seems different. There's something about him that has 
changed for the better. He's more like someone who has a purpose to his life and a direction in his life and a reason for being here other than just existing from one day to the next. I wonder if Simon Peter viewed his mother-in-law any differently after he met Jesus. Was Jesus able to help him see others, even those in his own household, as persons of sacred worth and value, rather than as people just to be endured who are unworthy of our time and our effort? Try to imagine that day when Jesus went home with Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. Another set of brothers were there that day too, James and John. You've heard a little bit about them. Was Simon Peter nervous about having Jesus in his home? Was this the first time that Jesus had ever been to to Peter's home or was he an old friend? Had he been there often? Did Jesus come especially to minister to Simon Peter's mother-in-law? Or did that healing just kind of happen after he got there and realized what was going on. And what are we to make of the fact that Jesus and the others had just come from the synagogue when the healing took place? Here's one way of looking at that. Jesus going from the synagogue into the house suggests that he knew about the art of going home from church, of carrying the truth proclaimed in the house of worship out into the life around him, wherever that happened to be. That's what Jesus did. In the synagogue, his word was spoken and taken with power. And then he went into the house and to a place of need. And he brought the saving power of Jesus into contact with the needs that were in that house and in the community around them. All too often we go to church, it seems. But we don't follow that by going from the synagogue, so to speak, to the house. To bring the power of God proclaimed and felt in worship into the service of human need. We sometimes walk out or walk away from our place of worship, if you're worshiping at home today. And don't take the power of God with us. All too often people would leave church and they would walk out, leaving behind them the power and the experience. Like people sometimes would leave a hymnal in the purex when we could put hymnals out and one day we will again. And sometimes hymnals you've seen in places, not here, are stamped, please do not carry this from the church, not to be taken from the church. Not everybody has observed that across the years. I've got a hymnal that my mother took out of the church in the 1960s. And... uh, it probably will never go back. But try to, try to imagine when Jesus' large hands, strong hands, working hands, wrapped around the fragile hands, the smaller hands of Peter's mother-in-law. And the touch of another human hand can often bring comfort and great hope. John Stone, I believe John was his first name. He was a physician at Emory for years and years, wrote a book that I've read a couple of times. He is passed away now or has passed away. But one of the lines in the book that I remember that I think about often, he says, to touch another human being, whether in the name of love or in the name of medicine, is a high and holy privilege. Jesus wrapped his hands around the hands of Simon's mother-in-law. And he brought compassion and he brought strength. 
hands full of grace and truth. And as his weak, strong hand lifted her up, Booker T. Washington said once, there are two ways of exerting one's strength. One is by putting down and the other is by lifting up. Jesus lifted her up and she stood on her feet. She stood straight and she was strong again. Much as the demon and the, you know, we talked about last week. It's the same, came from the synagogue in Capernaum, came home to Simon Peter's mother-in-law, came home to the house And that demon had been cast out by the power of Jesus. And now he had come into the house and he had cast out the fever, the unclean, the hurtful fever. Could it be that all things unclean or hurtful or hateful or vulnerable to both the word and the touch of Jesus the Christ, the son of the living God? He took her by the hand and the fever left her. According to one more contemporary scholar whose commentary I consulted, this was a physical healing. The power and love of God was expressed through Jesus. Nothing else is on the scene or on the mind of the writer. But it's a fantastic way of talking about this, not just a physical healing, but more to it. When that fever left Simon Peter's mother-in-law, And we thought about that across the centuries, he said. It's Jesus drawing the fever from life. And when men and women have allowed Jesus to touch their minds and hearts, life's violent fevers have been drawn away from them. Fevers of anxiety and fear. Fevers of restless self-seeking, of grasping greed, of lust. All have left, folks, as Jesus' spirit has touched them. And they have responded to him as their master. St. Jerome, preaching on this text in Bethlehem around 400 A.D., said, Oh, that he, Jesus, would come to our house and enter and heal the fever of our sins at his command. For each and every one of us suffers from fever. He said, When I grow angry, I'm feverish. So many vices, so many fevers. But let us ask the apostles to call upon Jesus to come to us and to touch our hand. For if he touches our hand, the fever will flee. Try to imagine Simon Peter's mother-in-law as her hand was touched and as she was lifted up from the sickbed. Could it have been that she was thinking, isn't this just like a preacher? Come home from church. Approach me on my sick bed and expect me to get up feeling like this and to fry chicken and make some biscuits and gravy so he'd have something to eat. She may have been thinking that. But she may have been a devout woman of faith. And she may have been familiar with the passage from the book of the prophet Isaiah, the one that we refer to often in memorial services and at other times. She may have heard these words of scripture in her heart. Have you not known? Have you not heard? This is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, power to the fevered. And strengthens the powerless. Even youths will faint and grow weary. And the young will fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall round up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not faint. What are some of the things that fever us? Hate is one of those potentially fatal fevers. Would any of us be willing to take issue with the statement that that fever, the fever of hate, has reached pandemic proportions? Just spin the globe and close your eyes and touch anywhere on the globe, on the little globes that you have at home, and there is hatred. Examine our own nation and the way we often treat one another. Look down the streets of our cities and our towns and hatred is there. Another debilitating fever is prejudice. Why is it that so many folks feel like they have to have someone or some group to look down on in order to feel valuable in their own eyes? Are we so reluctant? Why are we so reluctant to accept a diagnosis of this particular fever that afflicts us all in some way? And still another havoc-wreaking figure is envy, also known as the green-eyed monster. Folks will allow this fever sometimes to cause them to do strange and weird and harmful things. Careful, that one can be devastating. Other fevers that plague humanity that often plague you and me, fear, greed, Pride, indifference, despair, anger, and rage that we see all around us. Lust and narrow-mindedness and short-sightedness and the list of fevers could go on and on and on. Maybe you are afflicted with one that I've mentioned or not mentioned. The list of fevers continues and would fill several volumes on the library shelf of a medical school library. Perhaps that which fevers us is an actual physical or mental illness. Try to imagine the sense of wonder and gratitude Simon Peter's mother-in-law must have felt when she placed her feet on the floor and stood tall once again. How did she react to this healing, to this lift that left her feverless and whole? The last part of verse 31, the last phrase there maybe answers that question for us and she began to serve them exactly what form her service took we're not sure did she wash their feet did she prepare a meal as we alluded to a moment ago what we know for sure is that the one who was healed became a servant one who was separated from the fever was the one who used her renewed strength to serve other folk around her to make a difference in their lives I once heard a church leader, in fact, it was Bishop Cannon, and I've mentioned him before, Bishop William Ragsdale Cannon, the bishop who ordained me many years ago and was quite the scholar and dean of the Candler School of Theology. And one of the things I remember about him, when he was preparing to preach and read the scripture lesson, he had hold the Bible up on his shoulder, closed and recite the scripture lesson and never miss a comma. He was, was an amazing kind of scholar. And of all the things he said, the one that I remember most is the only way to glorify God is by loving and serving other people. Held up against the background of this mother-in-law's story, that statement appears to be valid, doesn't it? In the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, the account of Paul and Silas, I believe they were in Ephesus and they'd been in prison for freeing a slave girl from an evil spirit that had long imprisoned her. 
And the folks who owned this slave girl, this, she was a fortune teller, a soothsayer. She was making a lot of money for these people. And when she was healed, there went their source of income. And so Paul and Silas were in prison. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were singing and praying and the other prisoners were listening. And there was an earthquake and the foundation of the prison was shaken and the shackles fell off and the doors flew open and the jailer drew his sword. He was going to take his own life because he knew that if any of the prisoners escaped, he would be held responsible for that. But the jailer fell before Paul and Silas because Paul had cried out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Nobody's leaving. We're all here. And the jailer fell down and trembling asked them, what must I do to be saved, to be whole, to have this peace, this assurance that you men have? And Paul said, of course, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you'll be made whole, you'll be changed. And guess what the first thing was that this man did after he had received Jesus into his heart. The jailer took Paul and Silas up into his own private quarters, into his own home, prisoners, bringing them into his own home. And he began to wash their wounds and he fed them. The one who fell down trembling and broken was lifted up. And the first thing he did was to love and serve others. (laughs) Oh my, you know what? That story sounds to me just like another mother-in-law story. (laughs) Kind of mother-in-law story we need to ask ourselves if we've ever experienced. Amen. Amen.